The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Squawkbox. These are your headlines. Big day for the markets. The U.S. stocks took a big hit. Uh, the Nasdaq saw its worst one-day drop since February, uh, and the S&P broke below 4,200. Whilst an uncertain revenue outlook overshadows an earnings beat from Meta after hours, the CEO Mark Zuckerberg says the company is committed to cost discipline. We are planning to continue focusing on operating efficiently going forward. In terms of, of investment priorities, AI will be our biggest investment area in, in 2024. A Stanchart third quarter underlying profit before tax comes in 2% lower. This as the bank chalks up $294 million in credit impairment charges. Interestingly, that includes exposure to China commercial real estate. Whilst net income, net interest income that is, increases 20%. Delighted to say we're going to speak to the CFO, Andy Halford, in just a couple of minutes' time. And BNP Paribas sees a better than expected third quarter with net income of 2.7 billion euros. The French lender's CFO issues a note of caution in a CNBC interview. The key concern for the global economy is what happens to oil and gas prices. And that is what we'll see. But the magnitude is difficult to estimate. But that is a point. Ford becomes the first of the big three U.S. automakers to strike a deal with UAW, with the tentative agreement now requiring approval for members after almost six weeks of strike action. And House Speaker has finally selected, that's four now, Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson nabs the gavel, winning the broad Republican support to end a turbulent three weeks on Capitol Hill. A warm welcome on another day. Karen and I would pontificate over the markets for about five to ten minutes at the top of the show, but we're so busy with C-suite guests in the next half an hour. I'm going to do this quickly. Uh, it was a bit of a drubbing uh, for a lot of stocks, and we talked a lot about leadership already this week. Well, the leadership came from the technology stocks to the downside, but this was a lot of sectors falling. Real estate down 2% plus, industrials, uh, materials, both 1% plus lower, but it was definitely technology uh, which had the biggest declines as well. Communication services, information technology all under a lot of pressure as you can see from the Nasdaq composite which as I mentioned in the headlines had its worst day since February. Uh, the S&P was below 4200 for the first time since May as well. Nasdaq 100, don't often talk about that one, uh, trading at levels not seen since December 2022. Was it inspired by Meta? Inspired by Meta and Google I would suggest, Alphabet. Uh, Meta shares lower in extended trade. It was fascinating. They were up 4% at one point, then they fell 7% from those highs to finish uh, 3% lower in extended trade. This is concerns over current quarter ad spending dampened positivity around the company's third quarter report. Shares initially bounced, as I say, as much as 4% after the bell as the social media giant reported its fastest revenue growth since 2021 at 23%. Meta's earnings and margin also beat as the company continues its so-called, quote, year of efficiency. We've talked about that quite a lot as well. However, the stock then later moved lower after the CFO, Susan Lee, said Meta is seeing softer ad spending this quarter. 
uh, in the wake of the Israel-Hamas conflict, with the company giving a wider range for its revenue outlook, with a midpoint below Wall Street expectations. The CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, said Meta will keep looking to cut costs. We are planning to continue focusing on operating efficiently going forward, uh, both because it creates a more disciplined and lean culture, um, and also because it provides stability to see our long-term initiatives through uh, in a very volatile world. Now, in, in terms of, of investment priorities, AI will be our biggest investment area in, in 2024. I want to talk about the stock action because I think what you've seen over the course of this year, year-to-day performance, is that Meta has been rewarded for a lot of those cost-cutting initiatives, but also for moving very aggressively into AI. In the report cut, I think the reason why we had such a bumpy performance, the unknown here was really around the advertising spending, thanks to the Israel-Hamas conflict. The market had moved aggressively around Snap already after warnings that that conflict was changing the mood music for advertisers. And there was a hint of that too for the fourth quarter where Meta is expecting those revenues to be between 36.5 to 40 billion. Analysts thought the range would be higher, that uh, 38.9 or almost 39 billion would be achievable in that fourth quarter. So I think there was an adjustment thanks to that advertising cycle issue. Also, the legalities here, something we've spoken about for a long time. There are legal issues. It hasn't necessarily touched the side. Meta's talking about the fact that it may catch up with them. We're seeing it in the form of a penalty, 1.2 billion euros in penalties by regulators in Ireland around a breach of data protection laws. And we're not done. The US is also going after Meta. So I think there was an element of caution just after a very strong double-digit performance from the stock this year. Um, you've picked up on revenues. Absolutely spot on the key point. You've picked up on legalities. I'll pick up on the third point, and, and I'm going to turn it on ahead. I thought like to do as well. I think it's about actually costs because I think the revenues were great by and large, concern about the outlook. I also think it's about the cost. If you've got a year of efficiencies, uh, and we've got a CFO around the desk and we'll come to him in a few moments, I'm about a complete difference. If you've got a year of efficiencies and your costs are going up, the market wants to know that this is money well spent. And I think that, look, the group is clearly spending money on where it sees priorities, perhaps less metaverse now, more AI, which again, Ordinarily, in a different market, would be applauded, but they're saying that Meta said expenses would rise in the year ahead, predicting a range of 94 to 99 billion dollars in 2024, compared with a range of up as high as 89 billion dollars in 2023. If you're going to have a year of efficiency, you don't want to bounce back too aggressively on costs. And I know that this is potentially money well spent on AI, etc. But this company has a checkered history of spending money on what the market likes. Ergo, are huge debates about the metaverse. There's a bit of spin doctoring, isn't there? Uh, the efficiency. They're building things. They've built a whole new platform, X, and X, sorry, a whole new platform to compete with X, and that is Threads. And of course, the AI story trying to catch up with all the other majors, the likes of Microsoft and Alphabet. So I think it's extraordinary to, to build the year as a year well, of efficiency. We won't ask when the CFO there. who's on the desk with us about um, meta, because I think that would just be too weird for him. We can ask him about his efficiency drive, though. Stan Schatz, third quarter underlying profit before tax has come in 2% lower at $1.3 billion. Andy Helford with us, the CFO of Standard Chartered. Andy, there's a lot to talk to you about. And I think one of the lines that jumped out to both of us this morning was some of the exposures to China at this stage in the real estate sector. And we've been covering it on air, that there's been a series of just dominoes across the industry. What are you witnessing and how is it impacting the business? So, um, good morning. Um, well, overall, if you step back, it was, I think, a very strong performance for the bank. So, year-to-date, our income is up 15%. We were up 15% last year as well. 
we've made almost as much underlying profit in nine months this year as we made in the whole of last year. So I think the overall performance of the bank is, is very strong. Um, China specifically, we took an impairment charge against investment in a business in China where the onshore activity has been lower than recently. But for us, what has been really interesting is the offshore activities. So Chinese clients operating outside of China, we have seen income almost 50% up year on year. So slightly flat within China, but very, very strong outside of China. So how do you play that strategy? Because the mainland market has been very key for a lot of banks over the last decade or so. And I think the narrative has now shifted around doing business in China to an extent, thanks to that property bubble being burst now. So, so how do you think about maximizing returns from the region? Well, I think the thing to understand with Standard Chartered is we're not a domestic bank in China. We do not operate a big retail franchise. We are much more supporters of export and import activity for corporates and also the dollar exchange. So what is happening at the moment actually is quite good for us because a lot of the businesses there are looking to expand outside of China mainland, and that is essentially what we've spent, well, 160 years specialising in. Yeah, you're, you're the first derivative, aren't you, on that domestic market? Well, yeah. but, but, but in terms of, and just to kind of drum down a bit further on Karen's point as well, you will be affected by everything going on domestically. Uh, of course, you've, you've noted the, the commercial real estate issues as well. Mm. What do we think on China at the moment? I mean, because... There, there is a beginning of a line being drawn in the sand by a lot of people. It's, okay, now we've had the downtick, we've had the, the less than exciting recovery, the commercial real estate problems, the concerns about what the government is doing, isn't doing. But I'm not convinced either way at the moment that I have a clue where China's going. Yeah. But you are far more the experts. What do you think? Well, what we are seeing is probably a slower recovery post-COVID than in some countries. But it's a huge population to mobilise after such a big event a particular sector, commercial real estate, that clearly has been problematic. But the forecast of GDP growth for China over the next two to three years back up at around the 5% level, most countries would be more than happy to have that sort of growth level. So we are very, very much of the view this is a period that we need to go through. We'll stick with it as the economy gets going. Then that should be good for us. It should be good they for would. others. They would. And if that's a real 4 to 5%, then there's obviously concerns about whether that's enough to avoid the middle income trap. But I don't want to go any more into it because I want, to, I want to do what you love most, which is going into the nitty gritty of numbers. It's why you became a CFO, I'm sure, as well. Um, your rate is 7%, down 2% year on year. I, hate, I see the higher tax charge as well. But when I look at different rates across the sector, I see an enormous uh, band of a difference. Unicredit, dare I say, it came with an 18 handle the other day as well. Yep. Are you happy with your business mix at the moment that's producing a rate of mid to high single digits? So the 7% is slightly low because of tax. Um, and if you put that on one side, the tax will normalise over the course of the year. So we have reaffirmed today that 10% for the full year is what we're aiming to get to. You have to go back probably 10 years since the bank last printed 10%. So that is going to be progress. We have said next year 11% and then we'll try to build it higher. So every bank is at different stages in the road to. But for us, the 10% is a very critical number. If we get there this year, when we get there this year, yeah. um, that will be a big milestone for us. Brilliant.
How much of this is down to the NIMS? And maybe you can unpack these numbers for us. What net interest income is up 20%, but there was a normalised net interest margin level here, 1.67%, a transient reduction of four basis points. We know the narrative from some central banks is like we're almost done when it comes to interest rates now. And there's been some deposit competition, which we've seen through the lens of some high street banks across the world. What are the different moving factors now? Well, despite the earlier comments, I'll try to keep this high level. Um, but just over half of our income actually comes from fees, not from interest. Just under comes from interest, first, of, first point. Uh, the net interest margin is the interest piece of this, and clearly the difference between what we get or what we lend and what we pay for what we are borrowing. Um, that has been increasing a lot over the last couple of years with rates increases. So the NIM is about 20% higher now than it was a year ago. It was a little soft in the third quarter, but we have said we expect the fourth quarter to be higher. And actually for this year, if we end up at around 170 basis points, we are saying next year should be 175 basis points. So we are actually still on an increasing trend on the NIM. A lot of other banks are actually sort of at the moment probably at about the peak point, but we are saying that there is still further growth in our NIM in the 2024 year. It's one of those horrible days we've got so much going on we have to just whiz through this. But I just want to look at the, the point about tax charges. Again, I know it sounds so dull, but you and I love tax charges. Uh, increased losses in the UK, which we cannot recognise as a tax benefit. I saw one fund manager the other day, a very famous one, saying, good news, our performance is so bad, you get the credit on your, uh, on your losses. But I mean, what's going on in the UK? Increased losses in the UK. Well, we do a lot of our hedging activity in the UK for the group as a whole. And because some of our hedges are out of the money, it is loss making. We do not have a retail bank in the UK that is making big profits to set those losses against, essentially, is the simple version of that problem. Um, I'd love to pontificate longer, but I think we'll leave it there. We've got a good idea of what's going on. Uh, we, again, Karen, I love seeing you first thing in the morning, so thank you very much indeed. There's very few people who get out of the bed physically to come and see us first thing, so we do appreciate it, Andy. Uh, Andy Halford, the CFO of Standard Chartered. Do we have to say Stand Chart? Yeah, you can say both. What, what, what do you get in trouble for saying for lease when you're with your communications people? Um, they don't tell me off for either. They've learned not to. Because <laughs> you know what they're like. They have to justify their existence, don't they? Stand chart, stand chart. All that expensive rebranding. I always said standard chart. Yeah. I always said standard chart. Yeah. Yeah. But it says, doesn't it say stand chart at the top of the thing? I don't know. Yeah. Either. Thank you. <laughs> in the meantime, uh, let's push on to BNP Paribas, where revenues rose over 4% in the third quarter, despite FIC revenues falling 14% as the French lender hailed its diversified model. Well, Charlotte joins us with more. Charlotte, we've had a whole string of earnings uh, across various borders this week. How does BNP Paribas stack up? This one is a little bit above expectation there for the Eurozone's largest lender. As you were saying, revenue up 4.3% to 11.5 billion for Q3. Net income at 2.6 billion on a reported basis. Now, looking at the different parts of the business, commercial and personal banking and services, revenue up 6.7%, so a bit of resilience on that front. CIB up 5%, of course, a similar picture to what we've seen at some of their competitors. FIC trading much lower than 14%, and equities just flat down 0.2%. But that's been offset by their global banking revenue that there was up 25%. So loan loss provisions uh, below uh, expectation at 735 million, which meant the cost of risk was standing at 33 basis points. A return of tangible equity a little bit above the target that they had set for their plan between 22 and 25, standing at 12.7% and a CT1 ratio at 13.4%. So all these a little bit above expectations, a bit of resilience that we've seen at Ben Paribas. And I had a 
chance to catch up with the CFO of the bank, Lars Machinil, and this is what he said. BNP Paribas delivers solid performance this third quarter. And as usual, it's uh, on the back of our diversified model, good cost control and prudent risk management. If we look at it, our revenues increased by 4.3%, positive jaws effect, basically one point, and the cost of risk remaining low at 33 basis points over outstanding, well below the 40 basis points we guided for. And on top of that, so our distributable net income increased to 2.7 billion euros in the third quarter. And even if I look at it over nine months of the year, the distributable net income increased 9.5%, reaching 8.8 billion, so 9.5%. And basically that means that the group already compensated the sale of Bank of the West that we did earlier in the year. So we're demonstrating intrinsically our ability to generate and maintain consistent growth. And to top it off, this growth leads to an EPS, which basically reaches 7.11 euros, up 15% in the first nine months, because the growth in the revenues is further strengthened by the share buyback that we have done. So this is basically what we see. So it's solid results reflecting very good commercial momentum. I ask you about CIB in particular, the performance there, so positive revenue, of course. We expected, that, uh, of course, after we saw the results from your competitors in Wall Street, uh, pressure on FIC and equities, you were flat, actually, with global banking revenue up 25%. So can you just break down the performance in CIB in particular? Within BNP Paribas, it's all about diversification, and even within CIB. So if you look at CIB in total, the revenues are up. And again, because we're close to our customers, we have a diversified set of business. And you mentioned one of them is global banking. Revenues up basically 20%. And why? Because we basically continue to grab market share. For example, we're number one in EMEA for capital market revenues in the first nine months. So that's one part. The second part is security services. Also, security services continue to grow. They are plus 9% in revenues, and this on the increase in outstandings. And then there is, of course, global markets. And if you look at global markets, there's several things. There is equity and prime services that had a good run in Europe. And then if you look at FIC in particular, the, in Europe, in particular the C, so the last C, so within FIC you have at the end, you have commodities. And commodities back a year ago uh, in the third quarter, there was a lot of uh, sensitivity, stress, remember gas and all of these other things. So the demand and the volatility and therefore the pricing in commodities was very high. So we had a very high base. And that was Lars Machinil, the CFO of BNP Paribas here, where we're commenting on the results that were a little bit better than expected. Of course, it's still uh, worth mentioning that, as we know, the French banks sometimes benefit less from the higher interest rate uh, because of the regulated savings accounts that are linked to inflation, uh, long-term fixed mortgage, 20, 30 years plus, and usury rates. So all these elements mean that French banks sometimes don't, don't benefit from um, that. We'll talk about this again later on as well. Um, at this time yesterday, um, CNBC inaccurately stated the nature of Visa's fiscal fourth quarter earnings. Visa beat exp uh, expectations with adjusted EPS of $2.33. So it was actually a beat, and I think we said it was actually slightly lower. So apologies to Visa for that. Uh, meanwhile, Volvo Cars posted an almost 75% jump in operating profits to 6.1 Swedish krona in the third quarter. But the CEO, Jim Rowan, warned that uncertainties remain on the horizon. 
Um, brilliant time to speak to the man himself. Jim, really nice to see you, sir. Thanks very much. I know you're excited about the EX30. We talked about this last time. And now the EM30, uh, EM90, I beg your pardon, which will be revealed uh, fairly soon as well. So look, um, there are headwinds in the industry and, and we've all talked about them a lot previously. But how, how do you feel that Volvo are negotiating the transition at the moment? Pretty well. I mean, we're pretty happy with the, with the quarterly results. So, you know, we're up on 22% in terms of revenue. We're up 75% in terms of EBIT, um, perhaps even more importantly, we're up 111% in terms of our BEV, uh, fully electric car sales. Uh, and all of that bodes well for the future. Then, as you mentioned, uh, in addition to that, we have some really fantastic new cars on the horizon. The, the EX30, which you can see behind me here, has started production. We'll have our first customers behind the wheel of this car uh, before the end of this year. And then we'll ramp that up into production uh, to full scale uh, through the first quarter of, of next year. The EM90, as you mentioned, our first fully electric MPV. We, we announced that uh, on the 12th of November. So that's just around the corner. And we'll actually announce that car in China. We think that's going to be a really strong car for the China market. Uh, and then, of course, the EX90, our flagship SUV, will come into full production uh, in the second half of next year. So all, all in all, we're, we're, we're pretty pleased with the results. But more importantly, the, the quality results, that is, but more importantly, we're pleased with the direction of travel that we have in terms of the new cars that are coming online. There's many pieces to this uh, transition uh, conundrum as well, the jigsaw of it as well. But I can't help thinking that we're missing one or two bits of key technology or we're not quite where we need to be. Are you um, fully devoted to lithium iron or actually are you keeping a, a very close eye on solid state? Because it just seems to me the latter, I know there's cost issues, there are mass production, massive issues as well. But when we get to solid state, are we, are we just going to just redraw the map in terms of how good these cars are? Well, I think you're seeing progressive improvement anyway in terms of battery technology and, and in general, <coughs> the, the whole electrical propulsion system. So we're seeing massive improvements now with the, with the electric motors themselves. We're seeing improvements with the inverter modules that go that, that, that coexist with those motors and, and, and technologies such as silicon carbide, which is driving even more improvements. And then we're seeing battery chemistry uh, improve as well. So energy density within the batteries itself, that's really the key. Um, I, my personal opinion is that solid state is still some years off, um, but of course we're, we're involved in the, the research and development around that. But I think there's many more incremental benefits that we're going to see with the current electrical propulsion systems that is just going to continue to drive performance. And remember, if we compare electrical propulsion with internal combustion, then the, the efficiency of an internal combustion engine is roughly 35%. The efficiency of an electrical propulsion system is over 90%. So we're, we're already making you know, fantastic headway in terms of energy efficiency. Jim, it's Karen jumping in. I just want to pick up on that story around better margins thanks to falling, falling lithium prices. How much visibility do you have around that story this stage? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, we keep very close to that. Uh, of course, uh, you know, that, that spiked um, the, the late part of, of 22 and, and the early part of 23. That's now came back down, which is good. But we have good visibility on where we think that's going to trend going forward. And that's why we've given guidance as well. So we saw our BEV margins, for example, increase uh, threefold, uh, uh, quarter over quarter. So we're at 3% going to 9%. And, uh, and we expect, you know, we expect that trend to continue. Uh, as we see the uh, the cost of raw materials, not just lithium, but the cost of raw, other raw materials starting to come down, as well as our own internal efficiency gains. 
So, um, so, so yeah, so much, much, much brighter future than uh, uh, on the lithium front, at least, than, than we saw a few, a few quarters ago. Jim, just getting into the weeds a bit more on the cost side, I notice here that you've mentioned that costs for freight and other logistics have also eased. But we know that uh, the oil price has been bumpy in recent weeks, thanks to the, the conflict in the Middle East. What are your concerns when it comes to uh, some of those uh, transportation costs at this stage? Yeah, I think, you know, the last couple of years, I guess, has, has shown us but there will always be some level of turbulence and there will always be some level of, of headwind that you need to face. And that's why we're trying to build resi- resilience into the business, you know, pretty much every turn. So we've dealt with the COVID pandemic. No one saw that come. That was very disruptive. We had semiconductor shortages. Again, that was disruptive. This awful war in the Ukraine, of course, spiked a lot of the uh, the raw material prices, and and now we've got the the conflict in the Middle East again, a, a, a terrible humanitarian situation that we hope can be resolved really quickly. Uh, and it's it's another you know headwind uh, in terms of the oil prices that we'll simply need to just deal with. So I think you need to be constantly building resilience into the business and the understanding that there's likely to be turbulence, which is you know which is hard to predict. Uh, Jim, um, I kind of want us to do two questions in one because I know you've got a hard out in about a minute's time as well. Uh, in terms of the, the outlook at the moment, there seems to be a lot of concerns about pricing, about um, the overall levels of sales. But also I want to just chuck in there a little bit about China as well. If you just give us a round robin on the latter as well. Sure. So we've saw, you know, we've saw really strong demand for our products across the board uh, in terms of the, across all of the portfolio products that we have, but, but perhaps more importantly, across or geographical footprint where we where we actually sell sell cars in every market, so it's a very robust outlook for us. We're we're very pleased with that, of course, and that's allowed us to maintain our price discipline. Uh, the other thing is we we're we're a premium car manufacturer, so in that sense we we're not in that mass market space where there is a lot more competitive um, um, and price cutting than we see in the premium side. So we're a little bit protected on that side. You know, and I think specifically, as you allude to China, I think a lot of the uh, the, the real competition in China is at that lower end of of the market, that, that mass market space. But as I say, we are we're um, we're fortunate in the position that we're in we're in that premium market, which we we see less turbulence. Jim, thanks for joining us. We've managed to deliver on time to six twenty-five hard out there. Thank you for joining us on the channel this morning, Jim Rowan, CEO of Volvo Cars. Morgan Stanley has announced that Ted Pick will become the bank's new chief executive, replacing the outgoing CEO James Gorman, who will step down after nearly 14 years at the helm. Pick, who runs the bank's investment banking and trading divisions, was largely seen as the front runner for the job. Following his appointment, he told the Financial Times that he was not pursuing a change in Morgan Stanley's strategy. Our U.S. colleagues will speak to the new Morgan Stanley CEO as well as the outgoing CEO, James Gorman, later today. You can tune in for both of those interviews at 1600 CET. And coming up on the show, Republicans finally elect a House Speaker, ending weeks-long gridlock in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, We will discuss after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Uh, very warm welcome to Scorebox. Easier headlines. Uh, U.S. stocks took a big hit yesterday. The Nasdaq seeing its worst one-day drop since February and the S&P breaking below 4,200. 
Whilst uncertain revenue outlook overshadows an earnings beat from Meta after hours, the CEO Mark Zuckerberg says the company is committed to cost discipline. We are planning to continue focusing on operating efficiently going forward. In terms of, of investment priorities, AI will be our biggest investment area in, in 2024. Stanchart, a third quarter underlying profit before tax comes in 2% lower as the bank talks up $294 million in credit impairment charges, including exposure to China commercial real estate. The CFO Andy Halford tells CNBC he remains optimistic on the country. The forecast of GDP growth for China over the next two to three years back up at around the 5% level. Most countries would be more than happy to have that sort of growth level. So we are very, very much of the view this is a period that we need to go through. We'll stick with it. BNP Paribas meeting expectations in the third quarter with net income of 2.7 billion euros. The French lender's CFO issues a note of caution in a CNBC interview. The key concern for the global economy is what happens to oil and gas prices. And that is what we'll see. But the magnitude is difficult to estimate. But that is a point. And operating profit of Volvo cars jumps nearly 75% in the third quarter. Sales of electric cars driving overall growth higher. The CEO, Jim Rowan, warns of uncertainty on the horizon. I think, you know, the last couple of years, I guess, has shown us that there will always be some level of turbulence and there will always be some level of, of headwind that you need to face. And that's why we're trying to build resi resilience into the business, you know, pretty much every time. So when Karen and I talk to you, the audience, and talk to our experts around the desk, very often people talk about valuations. Of course they do. We do it every day. And then they talk about stocks that are trading at a discount to the broader markets and say, look, there are value opportunities with very, very strong premium companies that are trading, let's say, for instance, a single digit price earnings ratio. My caveat to that is always the auto sector. Why the auto sector? Because it's a sector which has traded for years, arguably decades, at single-digit PEs. And I would argue very often has been a value trap for many investors. Let us take you to a very big example. Volkswagen shares have fallen 48% over the last two years. And the aforementioned Volkswagen trades at a single-digit price-earnings ratio of 3.4 times. Now, when you consider that to a Tesla, which trades 40, 50, 60 times, now you can see that this is a sector which very often is talked about, but very rarely uh, performs up to the levels that people would expect and hope if they are holding it for the long term. Um, the company is saying today uh, that actually overall we have a robust path and, our, and grew our sales and revenues in the third quarter. But, and here it goes again, once again, Arno Antlitz, who is the CFO, says we cannot be satisfied with our profitability, which dragged behind our ambitious targets in the third quarter. Revenue was up 11.6% at 78.8 billion euros. Uh, operating result before special effects was up 14.9% as well. Deliveries to customers was up 7.4%. But again, once again, when you've got a CFO 
who is saying we had profitability targets which we cannot be satisfied with our attainment of those. We drag behind our ambitious targets in the third quarter. And this is a company that has spent billions of euros updating its product line, giving it a very, very respectable uh, electric vehicle range from ID3 upwards as well. But the problem is the profitability targets are just not being attained. And that is why we have issues with a, with a sector, not just a stock, a sector of OEMs that is underperforming expectations. But what about Mercedes? Uh, the macro is catching up with Mercedes. Do you think that there's a lot of luxury names out there that are immune to the cycle? Well, Mercedes is not one of them, and this is fascinating. Uh, the adjusted return on sales at the cars division for the full year to hit the lower end of its 12 to 14% target, uh, the company reporting today. It had a drop in third quarter earnings. This was uh, partly due to lower deliveries. Don't forget there's been issues around the supply chain. That's still lurking in these numbers today. It's described the market environment as subdued and marked by intense price competition, particularly in the EV segment. And we know that is a feature thanks to Tesla's price cuts and some of this, of course, linked to the big Chinese producers as well. But for me, the sentiment around the market environment being subdued is fascinating. And uh, in terms of what you've got elsewhere, the um, higher inflation story, that's been a, a real feature here. There's been a 329 million euro headwind from the FX story, as we've, of course, seen that strength in the US dollar. That's impacted the numbers along with those supply chain related costs. So I think uh, the comparison has been drawn here is that it's very similar to Porsche, where there were warnings about those um, macroeconomic problems really just starting to bite at some of these big automakers. When it comes to EBIT across the Mercedes-Benz group, that was down 6.8% to 4.8 billion euros. Revenue was down 1.4% at 37.2 billion euros. When it comes to the car division, that reported a 12.4% adjusted return on sales, again, at the lower end of the annual forecast. So I think uh, it is key here to see that uh, you've got a reduced uh, level here thanks to supply chain issues. That's, again, a legacy problem that's kicked into the business. But then the macro is having uh, some bearing now on these numbers that we're seeing. We're going to be hearing more about the Mercedes-Benz journey. The CFO of Mercedes, Harold Villain, will be joining us at 8 o'clock CET. Let's get to Stellantis because there's been another industry issue for some of the big automakers, and that's also around competition from China, but strike action from the United States workers. And Stellantis will buy a 21% stake in the Chinese electric vehicle maker Leap Motor for $1.6 billion. The deal comes as Stellantis seeks to reset its China strategy, with the CEO Carlos Tavares telling reporters, quote, to win in China is better to win with a Chinese company. So I guess a uh, foot on the ground, right? Um, it's not just tough for the European automakers as well. This is a global issue, as Karen was intimating there. The United Auto Workers Union has reached a tentative agreement with Ford to suspend its six weeks long industrial action. The deal includes a 25% pay increase, which will raise the top wages to over $40 an hour, alongside a 60% um, pay increase for starting wages. Shall I just re-cue that and say that again? Because I just think that's really important to go through this. And we, we talk about all the, the other issues in the industry. Listen to this. The deal includes a 25% pay increase. will raise the top wages to over $40 an hour, alongside a 68% pay increase for starting wages. These are huge numbers. Uh, the carmaker also agreed to reinstate cost of living uh, adjustments. To uh, The tentative agreement must still be approved, though, by local union leaders as well as Ford workers as well. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get a bit of sound from the UAW president, Sean Fain, and then we'll come back to this as well, because I've read those numbers twice for a reason, because they're huge. Anyway, Sean Fain praised the progress made in the negotiations. Today, 
we reached a tentative agreement with Ford. For months, we've said that record profits mean record contracts. And UAW family, our stand-up strike has delivered. Let me just reiterate, they're not one-year contract terms. These are over the terms of the four and a half year, but they're still big numbers. 68% for starting wages to 28 bucks an hour. There are so many ways you and I can take this. I'll take it one very obvious way as well. Is I mentioned before, it's not just Europeans have got problems as well. Um, for instance, General Motors trades at four times forward as well. Ford trades at six times forward as well. But the thing is, there's so much going on here. that The fact that union workers have such huge bargaining power at this stage of the cycle when we're so concerned about the interest rate rises across the world and, and, and at the same time we've got a price war going on that you just mentioned with Porsche and Mercedes and I talked about with Volkswagen as well and we mentioned with Jim Rowan. I mean it, it's just so challenging for this sector. Okay so doesn't the messaging start at the top? Looking at Ford CEO's pay, 21 million in compensation in 2022, up 21% from uh, the amount earned from the previous CEO in 2019. That's not completely out of the metrics that we're just talking about for the wage increases for the uh, early starters and the uh, more advanced workers in the business, right? The numbers are sort of in the range. I think that's been the problem. We've seen this executive compensation that keeps on growing, but we've not seen the lower end catch up. Is it going to be good for the industry profitability? Probably not. And this is a very difficult time for the industry. We keep talking about margins being reset thanks to price competition in the electric industry. And this is where all of the automakers are going. So it's not the ideal context, you've got to say, to go into the next frontier and fight the next battle for competition around EVs. When it comes to uh, the numbers and the relevance of strike action here, I think the union was celebrating the fact that they had a win here. Uh, the outcome, they said, was effectively... 50% high was the increase that they got on the Ford offer versus when they started the strikes, uh, the stand-up strikes on the 15th of September. So that is quite an outcome for the union. We haven't been talking about the might of unions for many years, have we? Uh, yeah. In terms of just one final point here too, uh, the strikes, Stellantis pulled out of CES. They said the costs are mounting, so they pulled back on the presentations of CES. Yeah, that's very interesting. Look, again, I'll, ju I'll just make the point as well. We've got GDP figures due as well. Uh, and... What happens if, if we continue to get deals like this with the strength of collective action, but also individual actions as well, and that wages do maintain uh, a too high level for the comfort zone for the analysts on Wall Street, for the Fed, for all kinds of people as well? I mean, again, we talk a lot about we're near the end of the rates hiking cycle, or we're probably done, and there probably won't be one on the 1st of November as well. But thereafter, this kind of deal is not going to add confidence to those who think we are going to start seeing cuts by the middle of 2024. Yeah, it's a good point around the wage price spiral. And let's push on to the politics stateside as the weeks-long deadlock in D.C. has finally come to an end, with Republicans electing Representative Mike Johnson to serve as the 56th House Speaker. The Louisiana Republican claimed the gavel in a vote that fell directly along party lines, receiving 220 votes to majority minority leader Hakeem Jeffries' 209 in a unanimous support from Republicans present. And with the election of a Speaker, the House can now resume day-to-day -day legislative activity. Johnson faces a raft of issues, including a looming government shutdown and the urgent funding requests from President Biden, which would provide aid to Israel and Ukraine. After receiving the gavel, Johnson promised Congress would get back to work. I want to thank you all for the trust that you have instilled in me to lead us in this historic and unprecedented moment that we're in. The challenge before us is great, but the time for action is now, and I will not let you down. I want to say to the American people, on behalf of all of us here, we hear you. We know the challenges you're facing. We 
we know that, uh, that there's a lot going on in our country, domestically and abroad, and we are ready to get to work again to solve those problems, and we will. Arabile joins us with more. Arabile, the world getting used to a new voice and new face here because this was a little-known congressman who has now claimed a key position in U.S. politics. Surprisingly, yes. Little-known, I suppose. But if one thinks about it, actually, he's also somebody who's had a key influence, actually, right? He's known as uh, one of the key uh, proponents then in defending Donald Trump, particularly the former president, as he was uh, trying to, of course, uh, ensure that he does not get impeached any further and, of course, try to stay in power um, during the January 6th uh, riots then that happened out in the United States. The New York Times article last year even called Johnson the most important architect of the Electoral College objections on January the 1st. So clearly he still, hold, uh, still held a, a really important role. 22-day deadlock, though. Three previous candidates... He's now the 56th Speaker of the House of Representatives. As you said, relatively unknown compared uh, to a lot of his predecessors as well, previous candidates. It's, it's a deeply divided Republican base that we're talking about uh, at this point where you'll see the ultra-right wing being the ones who had pre voted out uh, the previous Speaker, that being Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Johnson, who is 51, has been a member of the House of Representatives uh, since 2016 and does represent Louisiana's uh, 4th Congressional District, representing around 760,000 people. Um, he did have a clear argument, or an argument per se, that was put forward last year when it does come to the January 6th elections. And his argument was that certain states' changes of voting procedures during COVID-19 was unconstitutional, which seemed like a more palatable uh, excuse or perhaps a uh, notion then that was put forward to lawmakers than the fabricated claims of mass fraud. So does have a lot to kind of put forward at this point when he, of course, does take on the gavel as he has. He's got a lot of responsibilities now because there's a lot right. on the table. I think the key question for the markets is, will we be seeing a disruptive process now thanks to uh, the, the election of a new speaker? And you know, Matt uh, Getz, who has been one of the more disruptive figures in the States, particularly around the speaker process, he had plenty of nice things to say about Johnson as talking about the fact he's not beholden to lobbyists and special interests, that when he makes a decision, it comes from a place of sincerity. Very nice comments. Yeah. But will there be sacrifices for the far right of the party just to create some cohesion? in uh, you know, any, any proposal that's put forward. It's very likely. I mean, let's remember that Matt Gates is the one who actually led the, 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 the vote against previous Speaker Kevin McCarthy, right, and really wanting ultra-right wing and actually saying that the, the Republicans had voted too closely with the Democrats under previous uh, rules. However, Mike Johnson voted this year in favor of the debt limit law negotiated um, uh, in, between Kevin uh, McCarthy and Joe Biden. So that might actually be one element to really think about and say, well, actually, he did vote with the, Republic, with the Democrats in, in, uh, previously, but he did vote against the stopgap bill to avert a government shutdown on October 1st. He has other plans on how to do that. So... Who knows how that process will go now? Um, I, think, I think the key point here is that um, November 17th is looming once again, another shutdown, and uh, doesn't look like a conciliatory figure. That just looks like, given his voting record. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.